Well, this morning we, uh, we have the privilege of having Noel Hakenen join us this morning to preach God's word to us. Noel is a friend of Jeff Brewer's. Uh, they've known each other for a while, and when uh, Noel heard about some of the transitions we had going on here, he offered to help come and help us by spending a Sunday preaching for us. So, Noel, thank you for doing that. I invite you to go ahead and uh, come and bring God's word to us now. Oh, good morning. Uh, so, as Jared mentioned, my name is Noel Hakenen, and I serve as a teaching pastor at a church in Lansing, Michigan, a church called Riverview, um, as well as the regional director for the Upper Midwest for Acts 29. And uh, there's a couple things you need to know about me. First, uh, my wife is from Chicago. We love this city. We're Cubbies fans. So, if you're a White Sox fan or a Cardinals fan, we're going to ask you to step out. Um, and my, um, my middle son just moved to Chicago. So this is a city that we love. And so when Jeff invited me to, uh, to come out and share, I was just super excited to do that. Now, the other thing you need to know about me is that I'm legendary for selecting the wrong sermon to preach on Mother's Day. Uh, and so when I found out this Mother's Day, I was a little bit worried because I've preached from John 10, the passage where Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Preached that on Mother's Day. Um, I preached a passage in Second Chronicles where it says, man, uh, or God looks at the heart, but man looks at outward things, which you would think is a good passage, but not when mom dresses up nice for Mother's Day and you're saying God doesn't care about what you look like on the outside. Bad Mother's Day sermon. And the worst was when I preached the story of Rahab. And if you don't know Rahab, I'll let you look that up on your own and what her profession was, but that was a topic that I, I chose for Mother's Day. So I was a little bit nervous, and then Jared, I asked Jared, you know, uh, so what are you guys preaching on these days? And he said, oh, we're working through First Peter, and we're going to be just wrapping up First Peter 2. And at first I thought I was being punked, because if you look at First Peter 3, that passage is, wives, submit to your husbands. And my thought was, you didn't just select the worst passage in First Peter for a guest preacher to come preach on Mother's Day. But then he told me I could preach whatever I wanted, so it will not be First Peter 3. Okay, so what we're going to do is my hope today is to encourage us. Um, today's message is not about moms. It's not about mothering. But my hope is that this passage will be encouraging to everybody, including moms. And so if you have a Bible... If you could flip, tap, or swipe your way um, over to Ephesians 1, that's where we're going to be the majority of our time today. And what I want to do is I want to start by praying for you the prayer that Paul said he was praying for the Ephesians um, as we get started. And then we're going to work our way through that prayer and through the verses that come after it. And so we're going to start by praying Ephesians 1, uh, verses 15 through 19. So would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, because I have heard of the, the faith of Hope Fellowship in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for them, praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Amen. 
There's a very real sense in which Paul's words here to the Ephesians do reflect my affections towards you, even though I've only met a handful of you. Like Jared mentioned, I've been a friend of Jeff Brewer's for years, and Jeff brags about you guys. In fact, when he heard my son was moving to Chicago, his first reaction wasn't, oh, would your son come to our church? He's like, maybe you should come be the new lead pastor so you can be near your son. And he's like, these people are so great. And he brags on you. And, and, and you have allowed Jeff over the number of years to serve as our Chicagoland director for Acts 29. And so even giving of Jeff says that you have this love for the saints that Paul talks about here. The fact that a number of years ago, you allowed us to host our church planting assessment conference in the office building auditorium that you guys had for a while. We were there and, and we're able to assess church planters from Chicago that went on to plant all around the Midwest. And that tells me of your love of the saints. And so I really do mean this prayer for you guys. Now, what I love about this prayer is Paul starts with Jesus, which is always good, but then he invokes all three members of the Trinity in this prayer, right? He tells us that the source of wisdom and revelation is, is the Father, that is, and that, that, that knowledge and revelation is the knowledge of Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit is the one that reveals it to us. And then he uses this wonderful phrase. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And that's a great phrase, but think about how strange it is. Paul says, the eyes of your heart. I've got a friend in my life group who's a literalist, and so he's an artist too. But every time he hears anything, he immediately thinks literal, right? And I think of the eyes of our heart. It's a bizarre phrase, but when we look at what the Bible has to say about our heart, everything changes. See, the Bible doesn't just talk about our heart as the seat of our emotions, but our heart is the seat of our mind and our will and our intellect. It's where our personality sits. It's everything about who we are. In fact, I like to call our hearts the decision-making engine of our life. It's that part of us that helps us decide. It's our will, right? And so all of that is wrapped up in this. So, so Paul says, I am praying for you that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. In other words, I'm praying that the eyes of your decision-making engine of your life would be opened, that the, the eyes of your will would be open to something. And what is that something? Well, what he prays is that they would be open to three things. He says that they would be open to the hope to which Jesus has called you, to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe. And if you've been around me any length of time, a lot of times when I'm studying or teaching, I actually work the text backward because I find I learn almost a lot more by going to the conclusion first and working my way the other direction. So I want to look at those three things that Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to, but I want to do it in reverse order. (laughs) He starts, or he ends, I guess, with the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those of us who believe. For a moment, I want you to imagine the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And by the way, I just asked you to do something impossible because it's what? Immeasurable, right. So, so, but I want you to try. I want you to try to imagine the greatness of God's power. Think about it this way. Think about creation, right? 
There was a moment when there was nothing, and then there was everything. Actually, that's a lie, because God created time. So there was a moment at which there was, there was no moments, right? And then there was a moment where there were moments, and there was everything. That God spoke creation into being. There was a couple of years ago, my oldest son and I were driving across Texas. And it was at night, two-lane highway, just us in the truck in Texas. And we could see the stars in a way I've never seen them in my life. Like, we get, you know, we get light bleed in Lansing, like you do in Chicago. You're the night sky, you might see a couple stars. But out there in Texas, we saw so many stars. So I want you to imagine for a moment the greatness of God's power by imagining the stars. And if you have to be one of those people, close your eyes, go ahead and close your eyes. And imagine just the expanse of the sky with all the stars out there. Do you know how many stars there are? Well, Scripture tells us that we can't know, right? That they're more numerous than the sands, uh, 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 the sand on the sea. But Google tells us that they know. So, Google says up there in the sky that you're looking at right now, there are approximately 200 billion trillion stars. For those of you who are, are not mathematicians, that's a two followed by 23 zeros. Okay, the two followed by 23 zeros, stars in the sky. Now I want you to go back and look at the stars, and I want you to pick one, just one star, right? And this is like a sci-fi movie now, right? Just take that star that you just saw, and I want you to zoom in toward that star and get as close as you can to it. Now, all stars don't have planets around them. Your star has a planet around them. So now when you're zooming close, get to that star, look at the planets around it, zoom in around if they have rings like Saturn, look, see if there's planets, see if there's whatever's going on there, and then zoom back. If you did that and spent one minute zooming in and out of every star that there is in the sky, do you know how long it would take you to do? One minute per star. 380 quadrillion years. Now, you can open your eyes if you're going to close. I see some of you are still closing your eyes. God created all of that with his word. The immeasurable greatness of the power of God. And do you know where God is unleashing the immeasurable greatness of his power right now? The passage tells us. He is directing it toward those of us who believe. God is taking that same immeasurable power that spun all those stars into existence that would take us 380 quadrillion years to go look at all of them. And he is directing all of that power toward those of us who believe. And what is he doing? He's working on an inheritance. It says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about inheritances, but I think of my 80-year-old father-in-law. He lives in Chicago here. And the last time I went over to his condo, he has 80 years worth of garbage in his house. In his condo, it's off. He has copy machines in his living room. And like I, I said to my wife last time we were there, I do not want to clean out this garbage. And someday this is going to be our problem. But then as we were walking around his condo, I saw something strange. On every wall, my father-in-law has printed out photos of the people that he loves, and he has taped them on every wall with scotch tape. They're not in frames, but there are hundreds of pictures on his wall. And I asked him, I said, why are these on the wall? And he says, well, most people put their, their, their photos in a photo album, and then they never look at them. I tape all my pictures to the wall so I can look at the people that I love. And I was walking around, I saw this photo, about two feet wide, 
about three feet tall, blown up. It was of my wife in high school with her sister making a face kind of like, like one of those kind of faces. And I realized when dad dies, I want that photo. I am the only one who wants that photo. Like in the inheritance of his house, my 80-year-old father-in-law's house, and all the garbage in his house and the copy machines and everything else, I want this photo because it is a picture of one that I love. And what I love about this, this passage here is he is not describing our inheritance. Our inheritance actually shows up earlier in chapter 1. He's talking about what? He says, his glorious inheritance. This passage is about Jesus' inheritance, not yours. And do you know what Jesus' inheritance is? It says, his glorious inheritance in the saints. You, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are Jesus' inheritance. You are what he gets. As he wanders around and looks at the wall, he sees that picture of you, and he says, that's what I want. I want you as my inheritance. Now, Jesus is taking the immeasurable greatness of the power of God, he's directing it toward those of us who believe, and he is making us into his glorious inheritance. And now we could say all of that is the hope to which Jesus has called you. This is the hope that we have. Jesus is calling us to himself so he can present us to himself as the inheritance he wants. He's given us belief. He is directing his power to transform us into an inheritance. And one day in glory, he's going to pass us to himself and he's going to go, for me? Yes, for me. That is what Jesus wants. Now, let's continue. Because in verse 20, this gets even better. He says this. He says, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and sat him at his right hand in this place of authority. And then he placed everything under the authority of Jesus he put Jesus' feet on top of it, which means Jesus has now authority over all things. And then there's this weird and confusing little statement. He says he did all of this. Um, he made him head over all things to the church. And if you study this in Greek, the original language, that word two can be four. And other translations say four. And so somehow Jesus is placed in authority over all things for the church or to the church which is kind of weird. It almost like doesn't make sense. What is he getting at? Well, I actually think it's quite powerful. I think what Paul is getting at is that what Jesus is doing in the world, how he is exercising his authority in the world, is not just toward those of us who believe, but exercised through the church. And this is huge for us right now in 2022, because the church gets quite a bad rap in our culture right now. <laughs> I have been a pastor in the same church for 20 years. I've been in ministry for 30. Um, and for decades, 
I've heard people say, I love Jesus, but not the church. And I've heard that over and over for decades. But the number of people that are saying that to me now is growing exponentially. But here has been my experience. When someone says something like that, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, and then they abandon the local church, they eventually end up abandoning Jesus. And this just makes sense. Because what Jesus is doing in the world, how he is exercising his authority in the world, is through the church. So one of the things that I love is I get to not only be a local church pastor, but I get to work with Acts 29, helping to start new churches all over the world, but primarily in the Midwest. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because Jesus loves the church. Jesus works through the church. The way Jesus is directing his immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward those who believe is through the church. That's why at Acts 29 we say the local church is the primary means that God uses to establish his kingdom on earth. It's why we plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. And by the way, as a side note, Chicagoland is one of our top priorities with Acts 29, especially in the Midwest, because this is our largest urban area and more churches are closing doors than opening doors in this area. And we need more churches that will proclaim the gospel in the community. And by the way, if you want to talk to me about church planning, I would love to. I'll be out there and I'll talk to you about it later. But Paul here tells the Ephesians that how God is exercising his authority is, is through the church and how he's doing it is mind-boggling. Look at this passage. Go back and look at it. If you go to verse 22 and 23, what he basically says is two things. One, we are Jesus's body. We are his hands. We are his his feet, we are his heart, we are his mouth of Jesus in the world. And then he says, it's this really weird phrase, the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, that's a really weird statement. What does it mean? Well, to fill is to, is to, to be present and to exert influence. And this is what the local church does. We, as Jesus' hands and feet and mouth and heart, we're present in the world. We inhabit the spaces of the world. And, 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 we, and I want to be clear, I'm not talking about church buildings. That's why I'm so glad you're meeting in high school, because it's a perfect example. The church does not inhabit spaces by building buildings. Building buildings are fine. We inhabit spaces by going to homes and baseball diamonds and high schools, and, and social media platforms. And in those places that we inhabit, we extend the influence of Jesus. And I believe this is critically important in 2022 because people in 2020 got all stuck in their homes. And then as they ventured out in the world in 2021, people are beat down right now. Coming off the pandemic, they're, they're lonely and they're isolated, and they're scared, and they feel weak. And so what we do is we enter into their spaces with hope. What a beautiful name for your church. We enter their spaces with hope. And we point to something bigger than this world. We're present with them. And as Jesus' hands and feet 
and heart and mouth, we tell them that there's a God that is filled with immeasurable greatness of power that loves them and wants to direct that power toward them so that they can be filled with that love that he has for them. Now, all of this is great on its own. I could wrap up now, 15-minute sermon, over. We could leave this right here, and this would be enough. But Paul continues. He says, and. And that word means and. Which means he just said all of this stuff, this great stuff, but it's going to get better, what he's about to say. And this is the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter divides, throw us off. It's crazy, right? He's continuing his thought. He says, and, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Watch this. It's beautiful. He says, and... You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked. You, we all start out life dead, right? Right? We all know that, right? It's like the walking dead. We start dead, right? And then Jesus brings us to life. And the thing that causes us to be dead is our trespasses and our sins. And I love that word trespasses because we all know what that means. It means going the place we're not supposed to go, right? Failing to reflect the image of God in our nature, our attitude, and our action. That's what sin is. That's what trespassing is. We take the wrong steps. And, and, and we know we're not supposed to go there, and yet we go there anyway. And, and he says this leads to death. And obviously that physical death is a part of that, but this is spiritual death that leads to physical death. And because of that, he makes several descriptions about us. He says we're following the course of this world. He says we're following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That means that this world operates on systems and structures and principles that oppose God. And we're used to following that. That's how we start. We follow right along with that. But that is how we used to be, he says. You were once this. You used to walk like this. But God. But God. You were not left alone to fend for yourselves. You didn't have to try to fix yourself or save yourself. But God. And remember who we're talking about here. This is the God who created all the stars and all of the universe, who has the immeasurable greatness of his power, that God. But God, he can do whatever he wants. He can snap his fingers and you cease to exist. But God, being rich in mercy. <laughs> I am barely merciful. Like, traffic is like my besetting sin. It's what makes Chicago, like, yesterday I'm like, I'm like behind people and they're driving so freaking slow. And I'm like, would you just get out of this lane? Right? And then they get out of the lane and then I catch up to somebody else and somebody gets on my butt because I'm going too slow. And I'm like, would you get off my butt? Right? <laughs> I, have, I, I don't want to give mercy to any of these terrible drivers. I believe that what they deserve is a fiery wreck on the side of the road. I'm confessing my sins. I'm not rich in mercy. 
I dream about people getting what they deserve, but mercy is not getting what you deserve. I'm so glad that God is not like me. He is not just merciful, he is rich in mercy. I want you to think about your favorite dessert. Now, I'm not a big dessert guy, but I was in England once, and they offered me a dessert that honestly sounded terrible. Uh, They called it sticky toffee pudding, but I thought they said stinky toffee pudding at first, Um, and I thought, that is just awful. And I said, what is in this stinky toffee pudding? And, And they said, figs. (laughs) <laughs> like, there's no shot. Like, but you're in another environment, so you got to try something. you got to be kind, and it's supposed to be dessert. So I'm like, okay, uh, this is not as bad. I had pig brain, by the way, in, in China, so it couldn't possibly be worse than that, right? So I said, sure, I'll take the stinky toffee pudding. And the, the wait staff said, no, you mean sticky toffee pudding. I'm like, oh, that sounds better, right? But then they bring it. And if you've never had sticky toffee pudding, let me just describe this. It is a a moist piece of cake made out of figs. I can't even describe how you make figs taste so good. But it's like this sponge, this rich sponge. And then what they do on top of this rich sponge cake is they pour toffee, like, like melted caramel toffee over the top. And they just cover the whole thing in this sticky toffee. And then on top of that, they put custard. Oh, yeah, like, you just, yeah, she's with me. So, like, just you and I, we're the only ones, like, it's like, like, so, 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 like, you have all of that in one big dish, and it is, like, so rich. God, in his mercy, is the sticky toffee pudding of mercy, Don't think about riches and money. We already have this kind of, our brain goes there. But your richest favorite food, he is that of mercy. And think about what he does with that richness, that richness of giving us what we don't deserve, right? That richness, that depth of flavor of what we don't deserve. He says, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive with Christ. So we were dead, and because he has so much mercy that it's like sticky toffee pudding of mercy, right? He pours out the richness of that mercy on us. We are now alive. He goes on and says, by grace you have been saved. And so if mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So imagine you're that terrible slow driver in the left lane that I think deserves to be run off the road into a fiery wreck. It would be like handing you the best driver in all of Chicago award. You not only don't get what you deserve, you get something you don't deserve at all. You get the Olympic gold medal of driving. And here's the most under-discussed part of this gospel. I love this. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't just make you alive. He raised himself up. He was raised to the right hand of God the Father. And you now have a new position right there with him. So if I ask you the question where you are right now, there's a couple right answers. To say that you are in the uh, high school, which I went to the wrong one this morning, I went to the west one. To say you're in the east high school, 
would be a right answer. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, another right answer is right now, you are seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father. That's where you are now. You are with him. And when it says you're with him, does that mean you're sitting on his lap? Well, it means something even better. If you put your finger in Ephesians and flip over to Colossians, Colossians, it says this in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Look at what he says. If then you have been raised with Christ. This is the most critical if. He's assuming that the reader can say, yes, that's me. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can say, yes, that's me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father, In Greek, this phrase, uh, seek, means keep on seeking. Um, And so it's important because we're so easily distracted with what I call shiny object syndrome, right? Just kind of moving on and things in life get distracting to you. Relationships are distracting and a new car is distracting and our job is distracting and finals are distracting and the the Cubbies winning the World Series once in, you know, a century is distracting, right? And so these things distract us. But he's like, no, 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 keep on seeking. Lift your eyes, lift your eyes, lift your eyes. Keep doing that. And and there's a shine that fades away in this world. But keep lifting your eyes to where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you're not just no longer dead to your sin. You're made alive. You're no longer alive. You're in Christ. And according to this, you're not only in Christ, but you're also with Christ. Now, I know I've covered a lot of passages, but what is this saying? Pull it all together. What is Jesus doing? He is making you into his inheritance so he can present you to himself. And this is so good. Go back to Ephesians 2 verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is mind-blowing. What he has just said is Jesus saved you Not just for this life. He saved you so that in the coming ages, he might pour out the immeasurable power. Remember that immeasurable power from earlier that created the world? He's now doing the immeasurable portions of grace on you in eternity. Wrap that around your brain. One day, God will pour out on you immeasurable amounts of stuff that you don't deserve one bit. It doesn't matter how you lived this life. It doesn't matter what you did before Jesus saved you. He is going to pour out immeasurable portions of stuff you don't deserve. And, and, and if you just begin to think, well, am I going to deserve some of this stuff? Is some of this stuff, stuff I've got to earn? He jumps right back in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You have been saved by grace, through faith. What is faith? We all know it, but let's look at the definition in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is looking forward to that thing. 
Believing faith is that moment when everything clicks. Jesus is God. I'm a sinner. Jesus rose from the dead. I can't see him, but I believe this is the definition of reality. Go back to Ephesians, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result, so that no one may boast. What he's saying is logically, if your salvation is the mercy and grace of God, you're never going to be able to brag about it. If we could earn any bit of it, we would brag, because of course we would. <laughs> but you can't. The, the immeasurable greatness of God's power is directed toward those of us who believe, by grace, through faith, through the, the, uh, uh, the immeasurable richness of the mercy of God. <laughs> Verse 10, for we are... His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You see how long it took for him to get to anything that you might do? <laughs> he wanted to hammer this in your head first. That you are saved by grace through faith. You, can, you don't deserve the mercy. You don't deserve the grace. And now he says this great thing. God, through Jesus, did this work in our lives so that we would now go do good for him. But the good we do now also is not something we do. God has prepared it in advance for us to do. There's actually a doing part of the Christian walk, but it's not salvation, and it's not the good works we do. He still does the work through us. Doing is what we are created for, but we are, once we're saved from ourselves, once we've lifted our eyes to glory, once we realize that we're already seated in the heavenlies with God the Father and there's nothing that we can do, then now we can step into this world and we can live every bit of our life differently. Moms, you can mom differently. Students, you can walk the halls of this high school differently. Baristas, you can make a latte differently. Because our whole world changes when our eyes have lifted from this world. And we've realized we do good in our homes, in our schools, in our coffee shops, because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we live differently in this world and people say, why are you so different? You don't try to run me off the road when I'm driving like an idiot. You pour out grace and mercy on me when I don't deserve it. You can say, it's not me doing that. Jesus has done so much for me that I just can't help but to do that. Because you are God's workmanship, you are created for good works. And here's the deal. There will be times when you think you can't do it when your everyday life feels out of sync with this whole concept, and of course it does. <laughs> because our earthly condition longs for the day when we will be caught up in our positional righteousness that we have in heaven. Being down here doesn't feel right sometimes, because it ain't. <laughs> We're supposed to be caught up to the right hand of God the Father. And here's the promise Jesus has for you. He is transforming you. And one day in glory, you will see him face to face. And you know what he's going to say? I'm going to paraphrase. I don't know this. I'm not a prophet, but this is my guess. He's going to look at you and say, look, that's exactly who I wanted to be here. 
I saw your picture hanging on the wall with all the garbage. And I said, that's the one I want. And I directed all the power of God towards you. I directed all the richness of God's mercy towards you. I directed all of the grace of God towards you. I gave you faith to believe in me, and here you are. Welcome. You're home. And now we just live in light of that here. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we just we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he saves us. And it doesn't matter what we've done or what we do, because it's all him. And so because of that, we just pray that you would transform us from the inside out. That you would transform this church to be a beacon of hope in this world. I just pray for the empty seats in this room that they would be filled by people that you are drawing to yourself. I just pray that as we, in our homes and in our classrooms and in our coffee shops, um, live a different life, that you would use us to draw people to yourself. We thank you that, you are do, that, that Jesus has all authority to and for the church. And so we just pray that you would use this church mightily. I pray for the next lead pastor of this church. Um, I just pray that right now you're stirring in his soul a passion for Lombard, a passion for the Chicago area, a passion for the lost. I just pray that you would raise up the right leader that could help equip these saints in the work of ministry so that they could step into this community in the name of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we respond in song.